Well, howdy, Lakeside. Good morning. I'm going to have to thank John for that endorsement. Holy cow. I can't lay mid-vote or... Was that a compliment? I think it's a compliment, right? All right. It was cool. Thanks, John. Well, howdy, Lakeside. How are you guys doing? How was uh, Christmas? Did we all survive? We made it. Happy New Year's. The last Sunday morning of 2017. It's pretty cool. In fact, it's actually kind of sad. This is uh, yesterday. We, start, we started the process of uh, de-Christmifying. I don't think that's a word, but de- we de-Christmased our house yesterday. Has anybody done that yet? It's always sad, but anyways, very, very special Sunday to be here together, and I'm really excited to be with you guys. How many of you are die-hard New Year's resolution people? I think I saw two right here. You are? Dude, high five. I'm going to high five you from there. No, it's okay. It's a high five from there. There you go. You don't keep exactly right. So here's the deal with me. Just a little confession. I gave up on New Year's resolutions a long time ago, man. I, I, you know, you hear about it. New Year, all here. Like we need to improve, need to get better. And years ago, I just punted on the whole deal. Like I don't even try. It's, it's a little sad, but it's very true. And I was thinking about it this week. I was wondering, like, why do I not even give it the old college try? Like, I don't even write them. I don't think about it. It's just like, I don't do it. And I think I've decided the reason why I'm not good at resolutions and why I, I don't do them is because I'm a little too much like Doug. It's true. And I don't mean like Doug me. I mean Doug the dog. You guys remember Doug the dog? You're, you ever see Up? So a couple things about Up. Up is one of the few movies that makes me cry like every time. Man, Pixar, they get me. And it's, that's one thing about the movie. The other thing is I found myself in animal form. You remember Squirrel? <laughs> totally. That is my cross to bear. I have what doctors refer to as a little bit of some ADD. And so for me, whenever I have important things that I need to be focusing on, or working on, if I have a lot of them, say I have 10 things that I need to do or I need to focus on, I will think about them, I will write stuff down about them, I'll talk to people about them, and I do nothing about them. (laughs) Is there anyone like this here? Anyone in your family like this? All right, ah, it's, it's my deal. But for all of us, if we're honest, we would agree that we're not that great at willing ourselves into a better new year. Isn't that true? I mean, how many of us have said, this is like the 10th year in a row, we're saying, this year, I am off the carbs, I am off the couch, I am getting in shape, it is happening, for real, this year. And what happens in February? It starts going like that. Or how many of us, the month of December was financial lawlessness. I mean, if there was a budget, it disappeared. It was Dave Ramsey is like just yelling. And (laughs) January 1, tomorrow, you are dusting out that budget, cutting up credit cards. Every dollar will have a name. Financial peace is where you're headed. And what happens? You sign up for financial Exactly. That's what you do. That's what you do. Or you're a student and you're back from college or you're in high school or middle school and 
you know, you, on, when you go back to school, you start all of your classes with 100%, right? Straight A's. And the commitment is like, I'm, I, procrastination is a thing of the past. I'm going to sit up. I'm going to pay attention. I'm going to show up, take notes. I got this. And what happens? We are really bad at willing ourselves to be better. We just are. And some of you might be here this morning and you're thinking about your life and looking back and looking forward and you think to yourself, it's not that I just need to improve next year. I just need to be better, like on a deeper level. Like I don't just need to get something squared away. Like I need total life upheaval. And at Lakeside, we have a word for that that we talk about all the time, and that word is transformation. 30 years ago, Brad started Lakeside Church, and he latched on to this vision from God. And you guys, um, I mean, 30 years ago, that's a long time. Brad's pretty old. You know, it's kind of, I was actually, I think I was five when Brad started Lakeside. So Actually, was five. Yeah, five years old. Wow. Long time. So Brad's an old guy. But he came up with this mission, or he, he, he fell in love with this mission. And you guys know it if you've been here. And if you haven't, this is, this is the MO of Lakeside. This is why Lakeside is here. This is why these buildings are here. This is why I work here. This is why there's a staff, because we have this mission to see as many people as possible, as many people as possible, transformed into passionate and productive followers of Jesus. That's it. That's the guiding light. That is what we are all about here at Lakeside, is transformation. But there's a, there's a catch with that mission. There's, there's a rub. And, and the rub is something we, we kind of all know. That you and I, we don't transform anybody. Amen? Amen? We don't even, we, we have trouble improving ourselves, let alone transforming ourselves. You and I do not transform ourselves or anybody else, and we know it. And I kind of was always cool with this idea, like I, I get it, we can't transform ourselves, something only God can do, but then something happened to me about 16 months ago that changed my perspective. I had a little girl, and uh, you guys want to see pictures? How do I know you'd say yes? Shameless dad. Got to show pictures of my daughter. It's unbelievable. So I would love it if God would just come down and say, hey, Doug, I will give you the power. Like, I will give you the Jedi mind control to make Lucy fall in love with Jesus. I'm going to let you do that. I would love it. But if you're a parent and like, you know that I am powerless to transform my daughter into a passionate and productive follower of Jesus. I mean, I'm going to pray for her. I'm going to bring her to church. I'm going to get her involved in youth group. As she grows up, I'm going to try to get godly women into her life to take her out to coffee and pursue her through those teenage years. And I know there's a day coming, and I, I hate that this is true, but when she, as she grows up, she will someday look at her mom and dad, look at us and say, what do you guys know? I got this. And, and she will pull away from us. And I hope and pray that God would just get a hold of her heart. But I know that I can't make her 
fall in love with God. I just can't. And you know that too. Have you ever tried to transform your spouse? How did that go? You ever try to transform your kids? Have you ever tried to transform your in-laws or your boss at work? Like we can't do it. We just can't. And this is where Jesus makes all of the difference in the world. It's because Jesus promises transformation. Jesus promises to do for us what none of us can do for ourselves or for anyone else. He promises us transformation. In the book of Romans, chapter 8, verse 29, it says, For those God foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of Jesus. God's MO for you and I is to turn us into people that look like Jesus. And so what I want to do this morning on this last Sunday morning of 2017 is I want to look at a passage of Scripture that I think gives us some insights into what transformation is. And it comes from the book of John, John chapter 3. So if you have your version app, you can go there. Or if you actually have your Bible, you can turn there, John chapter 3. And uh, something that's interesting about Jesus is Jesus was, wherever he went, transformation happened. He met all kinds of people in his ministry. He had many, many conversations, and transformation just seemed to happen all along the way. And in John chapter 3, uh, we see that. As a youth pastor, I love, I love seeing transformation in people's lives. It's one, of the, um, it's one of my favorite parts about my job. And uh, before we look into John chapter 3, I just want to tell you a few stories about some of the transformation I've seen. One of the things we do every year in our student ministries is we take our middle school and our high school students down to San Francisco, to this area of the city known as the uh, Tenderloin. And we spend a week down there working with uh, the homeless population. And um, this is kind of a rough part of the city. I mean, it's, it's dirty. There's homeless people everywhere. We sleep. The food's bad. Anybody, anybody want to go? Just, <laughs> am, I, am I selling this enough for you? Yeah, it's just kind of a, it's, everything about this trip is uncomfortable. But yet we go down there and we serve, and I tell you what, we come back and students are transformed. They're not perfect, their life's not figured out, but they come back different kids. And this past year, we went down to the Tenderloin and we were serving and we came back and there was a group of students that came back and said, you know what, we don't want to just do this once a year going down to the Tenderloin, we want to actually do this in Sacramento so a group of students got together and they created a nonprofit called Humanity Reboxed. And what they do is they create these little boxes of toiletries and things that can be given to people who are living on the street. And they go down to Sacramento and they just give it away. And they talk to people. And one of the things that I love about this is I had nothing to do with it. Nothing. Like, I didn't tell them to do it. I didn't pay them to do it. I didn't, I didn't, like, you need to do this. It will help our youth. Like, they just did it because God is transforming their lives. He's transforming their heart, and it changes everything. Another story of transformation that happened, that's been happening is um, 
This past fall, we, we had a student in our ministry. She, um, she grew up here at Lakeside. Her family has come to Lakeside for a long time, and she grew up in coming to Kids Fest. And uh, she actually has on that wall over there, there's all these little squares, and she actually made one when she was three years old. And um, she's an amazing young girl. Grew up going to Kids Fest in middle school, was in Gab, was really involved in high school. I got to know her really well. She was one of our student leaders, um, college student, and, and then tragically, in October, she, she passed away. And it was the most horrible thing I've ever been through as a youth pastor. And, but what was so remarkable about that story was Maddie was a girl who was transformed by Jesus. At, and she was only 19. I mean, she's so young at the beginning of her life. But at a young age, Jesus got a hold of her heart and began to change her and began to transform her. And what I have been so amazed at after this horrible event happened, all of the conversations I've had with students and how they tell me things like how much they've been transformed because of what Jesus did in her life. Students will say stuff like, I want to follow Jesus like Maddie followed Jesus. I want to forgive people the way Maddie forgave people. I want to be generous like Maddie was generous. I mean, Maddie was so generous. I mean, you talk about giving your life away. She did that all the time. I was talking to her dad this week, and he told me, he said, hey, Doug, I am, I am 60 years old. And I have my daughter's Bible, and I am reading through it, and I am just blown away by how she has been transformed by Jesus. And the transformation that happened in her is changing me, an old man. And he's telling me this on the phone, and, I'm like, and I, it is just radical. See, because when transformation happens, when it gets into our lives, it changes everything. And it changes the people around us. So in John chapter 3 today, I want to look at this passage, and I think we discover three things about transformation. The first thing we discover is our need for it, the universal need that all of us have for transformation. The second thing that I think we'll discover is we'll discover Jesus' role in our transformation. And the third thing we'll discover is how does transformation actually happen? So if you guys have your Bibles, let's go to John chapter 3. And I should give you guys some background information. So Jesus is, um, I don't know how much you know about him, but I think it's safe to say that Jesus was a controversial figure in his day. Jesus had a lot of friends. There were a lot of people that loved him. And there were a lot of people that hated him. And a lot of those people that hated him were powerful people. People of influ influence, people who had pull in the leadership and the community and previously in John chapter 3 and John chapter 2 2 Jesus is in the temple flipping over tables and publicly calling out the religious establishment he's telling them you guys turn this temple into a den of robbers get them out of here he's 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 causing a mini stampede with all these sheeps and goats and just causing a ruckus i mean he was a <clears throat> he was a controversial figure. He was a problem for the leaders of the day. 
So in John chapter 3, the religious establishment get this idea together. They're going to send one of their own to make a, make a deal with Jesus. So that's where the story picks up. So let's check it out. John chapter 3, verse 1. It says, Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. And he came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God was not with him. So there's a few, few things we learn about Nicodemus. First of all, we learn that he's a leader and he's on this ruling council. We learn that he's an old man. You don't become a member of this leading council if you're a young guy. He's an old man. He's influential. He's educated. He's very religious. He's moral. He's a guy that's sort of been around the block a few times. He's the fix-it guy. And he shows up to Jesus at night, and he comes to him to sort of do some backroom politicking. And he asks Jesus a question without asking him a question. He says, we know you're a teacher. We know you have some power. And what he's asking is, Jesus, what do you, what do you want? What do you want? He's trying to see if Jesus is for sale. Will you, will you join us? Can we strike a deal? Will you come to our side? You're, caught, you're, you're tipping over the apple cart. Let's, let's work something out. Jesus replies, in classic Jesus fashion because he always goes to the real conflict. He always has a way of getting to what really needs to be talked about. And he says to this religious old man, this elite guy, he says, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. And just looks at him. Jesus goes right to the point. He says, Nicodemus, no one can even see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. The assumption at this time was that all of of the Jews, all of Israel was in on the kingdom of God. That they were, they just needed to have some moral purification. They needed their religious teachers to get them ready for God to set up the Jewish nation again to kick out the Romans, to stop the taxes because they were unfair, and to set up the nation of Israel again, an independent, thriving nation. That was the assumption. When you said kingdom of heaven, you were assuming that it's Israel reigning again. And Jesus looks at Nicodemus, this guy who knew very well what the consensus of the times were about, and he says, no, you have to be born again to even see the kingdom. Nicodemus, assuming that he could use his um, intellect to argue with Jesus. I mean, this was a guy who was used to debate. He wasn't easily caught on his heels. And so he says to him, how can someone be born when they're old? Nicodemus asks, surely they cannot enter a second time into the mother's womb. Jesus, not swayed a bit, he doubles down. He says, very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases, 
You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. Nicodemus then says, how can this be? How can this be? And Jesus says, you are Israel's teacher, and you don't understand these things? And then Jesus does something to Nicodemus that he just didn't expect. Something that Nicodemus would have been familiar with, but wasn't ready for. He gives Nicodemus a passage of scripture for him to go think about. Jesus looks at him and says in verse 14, Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. When I first read that, I was like, what is Jesus talking about? Snake in the wilderness? Like, what? And I did some research, and I was reading about it, and what he's doing right here is he's looking at Nicodemus and saying, you need to go back and read your Bible again which is very odd because Nicodemus was a Bible scholar. I mean, he had the Old Testament on lock. He probably had most of it memorized. And Jesus looks at him and says, no, you need to go back and read Numbers chapter 21, that little story about the snake in the wilderness. It's really kind of an odd story. And if you know the book of Numbers, the book of Numbers is a, it's the chronicle of Israel's journey in the wilderness. The, the story of rebellion, and there's a whole bunch of crazy stuff that happens. And in chapter 21, Israel is complaining. They're upset that they're out in the wilderness. They're complaining against Moses. They're complaining against God. And then God is just so fed up that he sends into the camp this uh, horde of snakes to start biting people, which is actually my worst nightmare, I think. I'm not a snake guy. So this horde of snakes comes in, and they start biting people, and they're poisonous, and people start dying. And so Moses cries out to God for help, for mercy, for grace, and God tells him to make this bronze serpent, put it on a stick, and put it right in the middle of camp. And anyone that looks at the snake will be healed. They won't die from their, from their snake bites. And it works. Everyone that looks at the snake is healed, and that's the end of the story. I mean, it's a very obscure, odd little story from the Old Testament. And here Nicodemus showed up. He just wanted to do some politics. He just wanted to kind of get Jesus to play ball. And Jesus looks at him and says, oh no, you got to be born again. And more than that, you got to go read your Bible again. Because just like the snake was lifted up in the wilderness so the Son of Man must be lifted up. The first thing we learn about transformation, and we see it here in this story, is that we all need the transformation that only Jesus can give us. See, Nicodemus, he represents people who are kind of satisfied with their life. He represents people who are established, like they, they're doing well. They have their student loans paid off, like they are, they're in their career. People seek their advice. People come looking for their counsel. They, they have answers to the questions of life. They appear to have it all together. They're religious. They're moral. They're good citizens. They're leaders. And Jesus looks at this guy 
and dead serious says, you got to be born again. You don't just need a little bit of improvement. You need a wholesale heart change, Nicodemus. Some of you here this morning, you're, you're the Nicodemus type. You're just like him. You're established. You've been coming to Lakeside for a long time. You come from a good family. I mean, you good, like people respect you. They, you have a lot, a lot going for you. And Jesus would look at you and he would say, you must be born again. You need transformation. Which is really, actually really good news. It's offensive, but it's really good news. Because if we're honest, if we have all those good things, we know those good things. They're just not enough. We need more. We need transformation. And for some of you here this morning, or some of us, we, we think about it, we're not like Nicodemus. I mean... For some of us, we think about our family, and, and our family is a cautionary tale. I mean, you look at you look at you think about your mom and dad, and how they spend their money, and their track record, and their how they've done relationships, and how many marriages they've had. And you're like, dude, I don't, I don't have my stuff together. My family doesn't have their stuff together. I haven't paid my student loans off. I need help. I need transformation. And Jesus would look at you, and he'd look at me, and say, you need to be transformed. We all need it. No matter what we bring to the table, no matter what we think keeps us from the table, Jesus looks at all of us and says, we can, we all need it, and we need his transformation. After giving Nicodemus the numbers passage, he says something to him that he would never forget. And what Jesus says next is the most famous words of Jesus. In verse 16, it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, and I believe he's saying to us, that when God wants to save the world, when God's saving the world, he didn't send me to be your teacher he sent me to be your savior. See, for this transformation to happen in our lives, we don't need a teacher. We need a savior. And Nicodemus, up until this point, he was talking to Jesus like he was a really nice teacher. And he kind of wanted him to just be another rabbi, to be another teacher peddling some good advice. But Jesus looks at him and says, no, God loves this world so much he actually sent his one and only son to save the world, to save you, Nicodemus. Come into the light, Nicodemus. You need a savior, not another teacher. One of my greatest fears is to live life in a way where Jesus is just my 
nice teacher that I admire. Like one of my, and I, and I work at a church, like I went to seminary, like I know Bible trivia. And if I just kind of treat the Bible like it's a really nice manual that I can use to tell kids about, and Jesus is a kind of like a life guru with some good advice to like get people out of debt and help marriages and you know, like, like just for utility purposes, not for transformation purposes. Jesus is just a teacher. He's just a, a helper. He's just like a little buddy that I can bring in when life gets rough. And Jesus says to, says to us, he says to you, he says to me, he says that that's not, you, you misunderstand. I am to be embraced as Lord and Savior or not at all. In order for transformation to happen, we have to see Jesus as our Savior, as our Lord, not as a teacher. I imagine Nicodemus at this point thinking to himself, wow, I I didn't expect to have this kind of conversation. I expected it to strike a deal. But now you're talking about my need for transformation. You're talking about who you are and how you are the Savior. And I wonder, I wonder what he was thinking. You know, he, it, it's an interesting thing when you look at this conversation. Um, Nicodemus is there at night, and um, the conversation starts as a dialogue between Jesus and Nicodemus, and then it turns into a monologue. I mean, Nicodemus, he says 29 words, 14 words, 4 words, and then he stops talking altogether. And Jesus just starts telling him what he needs. And I imagine Nicodemus, as he's listening and he's thinking, and he was an old man, he's been around the block, he's, he's lived life. He, see, he knows how the world kind of works. And I wonder if something was changing inside of his heart. I wonder if he was starting to think, you know what, I know that being a religious guy is not enough. I know that my real, real estate holdings is not enough. I know that the admiration of others is not good enough. I need more. I need a savior. Nicodemus was a man who would soon become uh, transformed. And what's interesting about it, uh, transformation, is transformation never happens in a moment. Transformation actually takes time. And this is... um, this is, kind of, this is incredibly unpopular because we live in an instant society and we live in a society where we're kind of allergic to things that are slow and things that take time. But the transformation that Jesus offers absolutely takes time. One of the things we talk about here at Lakeside and, and John mentioned it earlier is this whole idea of the well-crafted life that God is actually crafting that in us over time. And the well-crafted life is not something that happens instantly. It's not flashy. It doesn't attract press attention. It doesn't make newspaper headlines. It actually operates in the slow and the steady and the quiet. 
There's one pastor that I like. He has, a, he has a brilliant phrase for describing what the transformation Jesus offers is like. He says, the transformation Jesus offers is like a long obedience in the same direction. Did you love that? The transformation he offers is a long obedience in the same direction. It's slow. It's steady. It takes time. And for Nicodemus, he was the He was the same way. This transformation that had begun in him, this process that had started, was happening. And this conversation would change his life. We hear about Nicodemus only two more times in the Bible. We hear about him again in John chapter 7, verse 50. Uh, The Pharisees, the leadership, was again debating Jesus and kind of what to do with him. And there was a growing consensus that Jesus needed to be like, like taken care of, like gone. And so that, that's kind of happening. The discussion is unfolding. And in John chapter 7, verse 15, Nicodemus publicly speaks up on Jesus' behalf. And he says, does our law condemn a man without first hearing him to find out what he's been doing? And his contemporaries, they just laugh at him. They just say, are you from Galilee too? What are you talking about? Do you know what Jesus has been saying? I mean, they just sort of write him off. They, they laugh at him. But Nicodemus, all the while, is thinking, he's listening, he's reading that little snake story in the book of Numbers, he's praying, he's thinking, he's watching Jesus, he's listening to what's happening, he's paying attention, and this transformation is starting to happen in his life. He's starting to respond to it. I mean, what does it take for an old man to stand up in front of his peers and publicly defend someone who everybody thinks is expendable? I mean, he was a man on his way to becoming transformed. And the final time we hear about Nicodemus is in John chapter 19, verse 38. Jesus had just died on the cross, and Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus for a proper burial. And the writer says that Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jewish leaders. And with Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds worth. In taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices in strips of linen This was in accordance with Jewish burial customs. And at the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid because it was the Jewish day of preparation. And since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. At first reading of this, you may think like, that's not a big deal, but it, it is. This is a huge deal, what is happening here. These two older guys go to Pilate, the Roman official, and they request to have Jesus' body. And then they take all of these, I mean, he brings with him 75 pounds of these ointments and spices to be added to Jesus' body. And they do what would have been in that culture only women's work. Women were the ones who handled dead bodies. And here you have these two old, rich, educated men going to Pilate to get the body of Jesus And they handle him. They wrap him in linen. They lay him in the tomb. 
And I just think that Nicodemus at this point in his life was a man transformed. Because as he watched Jesus get lifted up on the cross, I think it clicked. And he went back to years ago to that that one night where he had that conversation with Jesus and Jesus looked him in the face and said, just like the snake was lifted in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. And I think he got it. I think he got it. He was a man transformed. In the Bible, whenever Jesus talks about transformation, he always uses, um, uses organic language. Like he'll talk about transformation it's like, a, um, like a seed or like a harvest or like yeast in dough or, or like a new birth. And it's interesting that he always uses organic terms to describe it. He doesn't use mechanical terms. He doesn't say the kingdom of God is like building a bridge or building a house or building like, like mechanical growth. At my house, I'm fixing a fence. And mechanical growth is I've got to build a fence. You know, I get some four-by-fours, dig a hole, four-by-fours in, concrete, fence boards, done, fence, right? Mechanical growth. But organic growth is like planting a tree. It's like taking a seed, putting it in the ground, watering it, caring for it, giving it time, giving it sunlight, and it grows. Whenever he talks about transformation, it's in organic terms. And what's interesting, you think about like a little seed, you think like a huge granite rock, you you wonder like which, which is stronger, the little seed or the granite rock? About 400 years ago, there was a little cherry seed that made its way into this large granite boulder in Japan. And that little seed started to get some water, started to get some sunlight, started to get some nutrients. And over the centuries, it weathered earthquakes, tsunamis, fires. It started to grow and it started to thrive. And that tree today is over 13 feet in diameter. It's over 30 feet tall. And this little tree that was a little seed in the crack of this giant granite boulder has now taken that boulder and created two boulders and split it right down the middle. And in 1923, it became one of the national treasures of the country of Japan. And every year, thousands of people go to watch it bloom to signify the coming spring. And when I heard about that, I just thought, that, that's the life. That's the transformation that Jesus offers. See, guys, when we come to him, we recognize our need for him. When we refuse to just think of him as a teacher, but receive him as Lord and Savior. When we say yes to the process, say yes to the time, say yes to the journey, that, tra- that transformation is coming. It changed Nicodemus' life and has the power to transform our lives. So as we sit here on this Sunday, the last Sunday of the year, may we not just have an improved 2018, may we have a transformed year. Will you guys pray with me? God, that's the cry of our heart. We cannot fix ourselves. We're bad at it. We can't even transform ourselves, but you can. God, I pray that we would say yes to you. I pray that 
your seeds of transformation would get into our hearts, would get into our lives, would get into our kids' lives, and that we would encounter you in this new year. We love you. Amen.